There's a kind of preacherly proverb that you might have heard before. It goes something like, if you're looking for a window into a person's heart, just look at their bank account. Now, here in the DMV, we have our own version of this proverb, and it goes something like, if you're looking for a window into somebody's heart, just look at their Google calendar. If you were to peek at the Choi family Google calendar, you might notice a few dates that stick out more than the others. Um, dates like certain days in the summer when the New York Yankees are playing at Camden Yards. Or maybe the more routine cadence of my daughter Bethany's piano lessons. Perhaps for you, it's um, something like an annual family beach trip or the ever-increasing flurry of sports and extracurricular activities during the school year. Whatever the specifics, the proverb holds true that for all of us, time is a precious commodity. Maybe even to the degree that, depending on the cause, some of us would sooner part with our money than with our time. Our relationship with time says a lot about our hearts. And this comes as no surprise to our Heavenly Father, who, for one thing, is the eternal creator of time itself, who designed us as time-bound creatures. And he created us to live in fellowship and communion with him moment by moment. Yet, if there's anything that Leviticus has taught us these past several months, it's that there's great havoc that sin has wreaked upon this relationship we have with God, and in turn, our relationship with time. We've seen the terrible effects of sin, its cost, death itself, and the way that it's caused us to be both unclean and unholy, and therefore unfit to be in God's holy presence. And the looming question throughout this book, the same question that looms over all of history, is this. How will we find our way back into God's holy presence? How, as Joni Mitchell puts it, can we get ourselves back to the garden? Well, it's this very question that Leviticus has been answering for us all the way back since chapter one, isn't it? Our only hope, the only hope for us to get back into the presence of a holy God is for God himself to make a way. And the good news of Leviticus is that God has made a way. That's so much more than just a litany of arbitrary rules or some form of divine micromanagement. God's laws are ultimately his way of communicating his grace and provision in the language of everyday life. From the dietary regulations to the sacrificial system, God's goal in Leviticus is not to further alienate his people from him, but to reach across the divide that sin created and to draw us to himself in repentance, faith, and hope. And so by entering into our space, that space becomes sacred space. We see that in the tabernacle. By laying claim on our things, on our stuff, those things become clean. 
We see that in the ceremonial laws. And as we're about to read in chapter 23, God even sets Israel's liturgical calendar, structuring their entire year according to certain, quote, appointed feasts, holy convocations, sacred assemblies, where he promised to show up in their midst. Because by shaping our relationship with time in this way, that time becomes holy time. And so without further delay, let's open up the scriptures. We're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 23, and it's going to be on pages 101 and 102 of the Black Bibles near your seat, formerly known as the Pew Bibles. We're going to read the entire chapter, and it's a little bit lengthy, but hopefully along the way uh, we'll see why we needed to read this entire chapter. Leviticus 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any, nor, any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest." And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day, after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven, as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a, solemn, a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus, Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me.
Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this sacred text. We thank you for your word. And now we ask that your spirit would illumine it to our hearts. He would turn the lights on in our minds that we would understand and see what we cannot on our own. And that it wouldn't just be knowledge that puffs up, but it would cause us to become the kinds of worshipers that you would have us be. We thank you for holy time like this. We thank you for this very moment where we are in your presence by your grace. Our great high priest is standing in the heavens for us and we look to him now. And I ask that you would cause this word to be worshiped to you as well. May you delight over us through the preaching of this sacred text. In Jesus' name, amen. Our proposition for the day, the main point, if you get nothing else out of our time together, is this. Public worship is God's gift of holy time to shape us into his holy people. I'll repeat that. Public worship is God's gift of holy time to shape us into his holy people. And in unpresbyterian fashion, I'm going to have five points that we go through together. And they'll be brief according to our time. But they all start with R, so hopefully uh, it provides some uh, memorable alliteration. First is that holy time calls us to rest. Holy time calls us to rest. Now, just a couple of comments about the way this chapter is laid out. It begins with the Lord introducing his commands to Moses concerning what he calls his appointed feasts. And it ends with Moses declaring them to the people. And so these two sections form kind of a bookends for the whole chapter with a brief summary statement included in verses 37 and 38. The feasts themselves are grouped according to the seasons in which they occur, either the spring which was in the months of March or April, or the autumn, which was in the months of September and October. And these feasts, they correspond to the harvest cycles in Canaan. But do you notice what precedes any discussion of the appointed feasts? It's there in verse 3. In verse 3, before delving into anything date-specific, God reminds the people of the most fundamental law on which all their worship is based. It's the Sabbath. In other words, the first and most important way we hallow time is by observing the fourth commandment, by resting on the Sabbath. From the beginning of time itself, God's design for his creation was that one day in seven would be set apart as holy, in which all the ordinary work of the previous six days would give way to rest. And it's that basic rhythm of weekly Sabbath rest which God calls Israel to embody as a nation in Exodus 20 in the giving of the law there. But here, he's reminding them again, this is the most basic principle on which any worship happens. It's the fourth commandment to rest on the Sabbath. But not only that, you might have picked up already how each of the appointed feasts are then signified by the command to rest. You heard that refrain again and again, you shall do no ordinary work. 
for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Booths, the first and last days were to be spent in, quote, solemn rest. Both the offering of first fruits and the Feast of Weeks were scheduled according to the Sabbath. And both the Feast of Trumpets, otherwise known as Rosh Hashanah, and Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur, they were themselves days of rest, the latter upon threat even of punishment. The point here is clear. Our worship of God, if nothing else, is an exercise in Sabbath rest. Holy time is a call for us to rest. And this is kind of a tough one for us modern folks, isn't it? Whether it's because of the stage of life we're in or the pace of life in this area or the elusive unicorn that is work-life balance, there seems to be an underlying restlessness in all of us that makes the fourth commandment all the more challenging, yet all the more needful. I've shared with some of you that uh, over the course of ministry, I've had the opportunity to be a part of several church plants. And there was one that I was serving at where uh, we were kind of at a fork in the road where we could uh, either sign a lease with a pretty desirable venue, only we would have to meet in the afternoon, or we could sign a lease with a less desirable venue and meet in the morning. And I remember uh, talking about it with one of the congregation members and just wanted to get her thoughts on it. And uh, I remember her saying that although it was less desirable, her preference was to meet in the morning. And it was because she preferred to, quote, get church out of the way so that she can go on to the other stuff she has to do before the new week starts. Now, being at a church plant, and this was in a more urban-facing setting, it wasn't uncommon to encounter that kind of honesty. But I think for all of us, in whatever ways you might struggle with spiritual restlessness, the need to be on all the time, the sense that you're wasting time if you're actually resting. I think for all of us, God's gracious call to worship is a call to come and rest, to receive the Sabbath that he alone can give, a Sabbath you might not have known you actually needed. Holy time is a call for us to rest, and it's by God's design, even in the very cosmos, which we'll look at in a little, in a little bit. But secondly, holy time teaches us to rely on God's provision. Holy time is a call to rest, but it also teaches us to rely on God's provision. Now, if anyone understood spiritual restlessness, it was the ancient Israelites. You see, for most of us, our difficulty with resting on the Sabbath has to do with things like professional advancement and lifestyle choice. For ancient Israel, Sabbath-keeping in a subsistent and agrarian society was quite literally a matter of life and death. Their harvest cycles determined the rhythms of everyday life because they depended on their harvest to put food on the table and to provide an income. Yet the lesson and the blessing is the same for us as it was for them. Will we rely on God and God alone to provide for all of our needs. We see God teaching this lesson through the holy time of first fruits. In verses 9 to 14, you saw that he instructs his people not only to offer the very first yield of the barley harvest, 
along with the burnt food and drink offerings, but even to abstain from partaking themselves until they had done so. And in this way, an Israelite worshiper would have experienced the tangible reality that God alone is Lord of the harvest from beginning to end. We see him teaching the same lesson through the holy time of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, which fell towards the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. Only this time, in verses 15 to 21, the offerings prescribed are far more lavish. Did you notice that? They were far more abundant and far more elaborate to reflect the worshiper's reliance on God in times of plenty. Now, in his mercy, the offerings in view here are most likely communal in nature. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, the pronoun you in this section is in the second person plural. More accurately uh, translated by the Southern Standard Version as y'all. Y'all offer these sacrifices. But also, the sheer quantity of livestock required in this feast would have been far more than most Israelite households could afford. And so God is signaling that even in the offering of these sacrifices here in the Feast of Weeks, we're to come together, to band together as a community of worshipers and to accordingly offer our sacrifices. But again, the message is clear. The God who provides in times of scarcity he can be by all means trusted in times of abundance. And not only that, we see in verse 22, by way of reminder from chapter 19, that there's no better way to express our reliance on God's provision than to show mercy to those in need. It's through our holy times of worship that God shapes us into a community of holy hospitality and mercy. That's the second point about holy time. But thirdly, holy time helps us remember and rejoice in God's faithfulness. Holy time is a call to rest. It teaches us to rely on God's provision, but it also helps us remember and rejoice in God's faithfulness. Now, for Israel in the wilderness, there was no greater faithfulness to remember than God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It's the story of the Exodus. Yet we see throughout that book how quickly they forgot his faithfulness, and all the more so as time went on. I was reminded of this this past week as I was reading an article uh, that was discussing the growing diversity of opinions among South Korean nationals about the prospect of reunification with North Korea. And this is an incredibly complex geopolitical issue but I think the article was trying to make the point that there seems to be a trend among previous generations of Koreans who uh, remember the armistice of 1953 and the turmoil that resulted in the decades that followed. And they seem to have a more unified consensus about even whether reunification could happen, let alone how to go about achieving it. But it was pointing out in the article that over time, what you see is a growing diversification of opinions. And it, the author was trying to link that to the fact that as time goes on, people become more and more removed generationally from the actual events. And so that shapes their collective memory about what happened and what the future holds. And so here in the first month of Israel's calendar year, 
God, in his kindness, really, he sets aside the holy times of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to memorialize in their very bodies his rescue of them so long ago. And likewise, in the latter half of the year, the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, which, according to verses 41 and 43, is a statute forever throughout their generations, that their generations may know that he made the people of Israel dwell in booths when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. You see, not only through their food offerings, but even in their very living arrangements for a week, God provides a holy reminder of what it took for his people to be free. And in verse 40, he calls forth their rejoicing over it. Beloved, I believe there's great truth that we can take away from this. As Reformed Presbyterians, um, we can have honest talk about our blind spots. You know, we place a very high premium on the life of the mind. And while doctrinal rigor is certainly necessary for godliness, the temptation for us could be to reduce worship, a holy time, to a theological exercise. While we believe holy times like Passover, Sukkot, and Rosh Hashanah have been fulfilled in Christ, the fact still remains that God cares very much what we do with our bodies and our emotions in worship. It's a holy time not just for our minds and our brains, but our whole selves. At our liturgy fellowship a few weeks ago, we talked about how one of the ways that music serves us in worship is through its mnemonic power. And that's mnemonic with an M. In other words, the way music helps us remember things. And the way it does so, it's not simply by us singing doctrinally accurate lyrics, although that's important. But music is a gift for our holy time of worship because by making beautiful art, our affections, and even our bodies are moved. And I think this is what Jonathan Edwards was getting at in section 115 of his Religious Affections. It says, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Our holy times of worship are times where we come as our whole selves, integrated creatures, not just brains and theological minds, but God invites our whole selves to come and engage with him, mind, body, and soul. And this same truth applies to every aspect of our liturgy, not just music. God has given us holy time and worship not only to think theologically correct thoughts, but to enter into a bodily experience of his presence through word, through sacrament, and prayer. We've been doing it so far all morning long. That's the third thing we see about holy time. But fourthly, holy time creates space for repentance and renewal. Holy time creates space for repentance and renewal. If you remember back in Leviticus chapter 16, Pastor Billy pointed out how the entire arc of Leviticus hinges on one day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. 
See, it's on the Day of Atonement that we find God's clearest answer to that question we asked earlier, that question of how it is we're going to be able to make our way back into his presence. And that answer can be summed up in one word, imputation. By imputing our guilt to a sacrificial substitute, God himself makes a way, the way for sins to be forgiven and sinners to live. Yet, as Elder Steve read for us earlier, even Israel's great day of atonement was but a copy and shadow of a greater day to come, a greater Yom Kippur. The blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs was always, always meant to point to something better. And we've been celebrating it, we've been singing it, we've been meditating on it this morning. It was at the cross that God imputed our guilt to a greater substitute, even his very own son. Only through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ can we now have full and final cleansing from all sin. What's more, God then imputes Christ's record of perfect righteousness to us. Elder Steve was praying it earlier. So that we're not only able to be in God's presence, he now looks upon us And do you believe this, dear friend? He calls you his very own. He says, this one belongs to me. And so for us, on this side of the cross, we come to our holy times not to atone for our sins. When we afflict ourselves in worship, as chapter 23 puts it, that's a word which can also be translated humble. When we humble ourselves, We do so in repentance, knowing that even those very sins we confess have already been atoned for at the cross. The holy time of public worship is that sacred moment when we can humble ourselves in repentance and experience afresh the renewing hope of Christ's atoning work on our behalf. And that's the blessing of holy time. But really, there's one other thing that we need to see from this chapter before we move to our time of communion. And it's this, holy time is recreation. Holy time is recreation. And that's recreation with a hyphen between re and creation. You see, up till now, we've been exploring how God uses holy time to shape us into his holy people. But there's actually a cosmic mystery hidden in plain view in this chapter. It's a mystery that extends beyond even our experience of holy time in worship. You see, by dedicating holy times as appointed feasts, Leviticus 23 is actually hearkening us back to Genesis 1.14, where, if you remember, on the fourth day of creation, God establishes the heavenly bodies for the specific purpose of being, quote, for signs and for seasons. And that word seasons is better translated appointed feasts. You might have noticed as well the repeated sevenfold pattern that we see in Leviticus 23, along with the six plus one structure of the paragraphs. It's even in our English Standard Version formatting. And, of course, there's, once again, the heavy emphasis on Sabbath rest. All of this is coming together in the mind of God revealed to us in the scriptures to tell us an amazing truth, that holy time 
is God's way, his means of recreating the world. With every second of holy time we spend in worship, God is actually secretly restoring that cosmic rest for which he created all things. Do you believe that, dear Christian? This worship service, every worship service on the Lord's Day, on the Christian Sabbath, is not simply a meeting within these walls, but we're actually being caught up in the grand drama of all creation. And it's to that promise that we can anchor our hope today. How? Well, because in Christ, God has come to dwell with us permanently, not in an earthly tabernacle, but by his spirit. In Jesus Christ, the true tent of meeting, all of the appointed feasts have found their fulfillment. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ, that risen Lord, he is the first fruits of the age to come. He secures for us a future through his resurrection in which all our restlessness will come to an end. There will be a day when we will truly live into the shalom of God. And so it's in anticipation of that holiest of times ahead that we come now to feast at this table, this table which is not the end-all be-all of our communion with him, but is a true communion with him here and now in this holy time. May we come to that table with faith, believing that this is not simply our time, but it is the Lord's appointed feast, the one that he has purchased and guaranteed for our spiritual benefit through the work of his son. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you call us to holy time. We thank you that uh, you don't simply order our calendars uh, and give us public service announcements pertaining to rules and regulations that we just need to keep to stay in right standing with you. But you have hallowed our time at every moment through Jesus Christ. Every waking hour of our life is a holy time now. And so we can come to you as we have been this morning in faith, entrusting our times of worship, knowing that we are resting, truly resting with rest and peace that the world cannot give us, that we cannot manufacture on our own. It is a gift from you for us to be able to rest as we are. Increase that rest in us and stimulate our faith even now as we come to your table. May our partaking of this blessed sacrament be a furthering of your work of renewal and restoration, not just in our own lives, but in all of creation as we are caught up in the drama of your work throughout history. Bless us now. We long to commune with you. Amen.